Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. So we have with us today Professor of Statistics Richard Hahn from Arizona State University. And this is going to be a little bit of a different conversation because Richard not only is a long-time collaborator of mine, but also a good friend. So perhaps this conversation will be a little bit more casual than, than usual. But hopefully we can touch a lot on issues of COVID in, in, in statistical terms. So, Richard, thanks for being with us. Thanks. It's going to be fun. Uh, so the way I'm trying to uh, have this conversation is to try to go back to what we know, when, you know in the beginning at first, to try to remember and recall how we were thinking and how we were judging the evidence that was in front of us then. So first, when did you start to get like, huh, there's something important going on here? What was the first sort of like piece of information that, that, that got your attention? So for me, it was in pieces because um, I work at Arizona State University and we had a student from China who got one of the earlier cases in the U.S. So I'm thinking that was in January, maybe January or February. Um, and, uh, and it made kind of big news. But at that time, this was when the, the if you go and look at the timestamps of your articles, uh, online. This was back when the New York Times was saying it was no worse than the seasonal flu, right? Um, and so we didn't take it too seriously, but it was uh, ooh, kind of interesting. And all of my Chinese graduate students were wearing masks. So they sort of like early on were like, had been talking to people at home. They, they, knew, they knew something. <laughs> <laughs> and so that I thought was weird. The biggest thing for me was that my classrooms, I started seeing students with masks. Um, and then there was a student but what happened was that student got better. Uh, they did, you know, tracing or whatever. They, they found his contacts and they put them in quarantine. He was a young guy. He recovered. Um, and that was kind of the end of it. And then uh, it started hitting the U.S. I had a trip planned to Brazil in March and uh, mid-March, I think 13th. Uh, no, I, I must have left on the 9th, something like somewhere around that. And uh, my biggest concern, so I went. So that tells you what my personal risk was. I didn't think it was a big deal. I wasn't scared of getting sick. I wasn't scared of being a vector. I wasn't scared of getting my family sick at that time. Uh, I was, my biggest fear was they were talking about closing down some airports. And so I was really worried that I might get stuck in Houston, which is where my connecting flight was. So anyway, this is just my boring personal story. But the idea was I, I didn't have models. I wasn't worried. Uh, when I was in Brazil, uh, the Italians didn't show up to the conference. And I was like, oh, okay. Cause, cause all, but not because they were sick, but because all air travel had been canceled. But then a lot changed, right? By the time I got back on May, or sorry, on March 13th, it was a whole, whole different world. Um, we talked that day. We were like, what's going on? I think 48 hours after that, California had their shelter in place order uh, in place. So I was bewildered. I, I mean, it's funny. So not only am I the less, the least illustrious guest that you're speaking to, but I'm also probably the most clueless one. This is just going to be like, what, what did an average dude do in COVID? Because, uh, yeah, I wasn't scared at all. And then I was like, oh, this is weird. Um, I didn't really get engaged and, and sort of intellectually until the Ferguson paper, Ferguson et al., um, Which was like a circa March 20th. That was around, that was around yeah. That was maybe a week short, after that. Maybe shortly week after, after that. I got back, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, I had uh, a good friend of ours, Joanna, uh, was at the conference in Brazil. She lives in London. Um, and we were talking at the time about how London... Her, hus- her husband works at Imperial College. I th- uh, did? 
did, oh, no. right? Did yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want to. I don't want to be quoted on that. Um, and so we, I, I, we were saying like how great it is that London is keeping schools open. Uh, so at that time, I adamantly believed the schools should be open, and then that paper came out, uh, and uh, Boris Johnson changed his mind um, overnight. Seemingly, what was that paper saying? Just so everybody, remember. yeah, yeah. So, so this paper, um, this paper basically said everyone's going to die <laughs> unless we shut the world down. I, I don't even remember the numbers. I, I remember reading it and thinking, well, this is obvious hyperbole. Um, so he said, if we don't do anything. Yes. In the U.S., 2.2 million people are going to die. 80 percent of the people are going to get it, and 2.2 percent of people are going to yes. die by the summer. By July, I think was the number, and and 500,000 people in the U.K. That was the, the 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 number they had. Yeah. So if somebody gives you numbers like that, and you think that they might be right, you start making different decisions. You start closing things down. You start uh, hunkering down with your family and so forth and so on. Um, I never liked that analysis um, from the from the get go. Um, what, what about it in particular? And the thing I didn't like about it was that their decision making was clearly uh, pessimistic, right? Statisticians or economists might call it minimax. They were worried about they were worried about the worst possible thing that could happen, and that's generally not a great way to make decisions. Uh, classic example is driving. And we drive all the time, but if we had a worst case attitude about the driving risks, none of us would ever be able to drive a car. The worst case of getting in a car again. Yeah, because yeah, the worst case is that you end up in a head on collision with a right. semi truck and it's over. But on average, uh, it doesn't happen. Right? No, it, it, not on average and, and not very often. Right? Okay. So it's important when dealing with decision making under uncertainty that you figure out what is your criteria? What is your criteria for evaluating this? Do I want it to be? Do I want to be right on average? Or am I going to have a lot of regret if I make a decision and end up being wrong? And, you know, decision theorists study this sort of stuff. By and large, that's not how policymaking is done. Policymaking in the real world has lots of stakeholders. Um, and it's it's a lot more based on gut, gut reactions, I guess. And it can go both ways. Sometimes people are too risky, I think. Sometimes they're not enough. But this case, I think, was very unique in that a scientific body wrote this report in a very aggressive way to, to make their point. Now, if they had been right and this had been Ebola level deadly or something like that, and it, plus the contagiousness, then maybe we'd be saying that they were heroes because they sort of overstated things and saved a bunch of lives. But, but frankly, the science wasn't there. I, I, I mean, by phrasing it in terms of the worst case, they were making a value judgment in terms of their emphasis, right? And when you say the science wasn't there, so I think there was a paper that came around the same time by uh, another group of experts in as Oxford, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, and what did that paper say? That yeah. Point? So that that paper came out a bit what like a week later, uh, or maybe less, and um, it basically said it said the opposite, uh, or at least that's how it was reported in the press. So that, I want to talk about both of those things, because I think they're kind of interesting. So what did the press say? What did the paper say? So this paper came out and it basically said, you know, look, it could possibly be the case that actually way more people are already infected than we thought. And if that's the case, then the denominator of the number of people that have this is much higher than we thought, meaning that the, the, the 
death rate or the infection fatality rate is a lot lower than we thought, in which case maybe, one, we're closer to immunity than we thought already because more people have it. And also, uh, it's not as scary as we thought it was. So that paper, that paper said this is a possibility. And again, it's a matter of emphasis um, because the fact of the matter is neither of the papers knew for sure and nor is it knowable. So the technical idea for this that I think, and I think this is why you have me here to talk about this, is there's this idea called identifiability or identification. And it basically says, based on uh, the data that's available to you, can you rule out certain stories or explanations to the exclusion of all others? Or, or sorry, can you, yeah, can you, or can you say that this is the, the right one? Or, this, uh, or here's the set of plausible things. Well, so that's the thing. Like, generally speaking, you can't. So, like, if you're doing physics, if you're doing uh, mechanics or something like that, you can do an experiment, and on the basis of that, you can rule out theory A, and you can therefore adopt theory B or something like that. Uh, in more complicated problems, in social sciences, in epidemiology, what, what you do instead is you rule things out. You say, this data is not consistent with these possibilities, but it is consistent with these. And so this is what I mean. The data that we had available at that time, it was a mixed bag of stuff coming out of uh, Wuhan and Italy and early cases in London and, and stuff like that. Not good data. I, I mean, it had all sorts of problems, not a lot of it. Um, and the tests, were, the tests are imperfect. I, and in fact, the tests are still not great. Right. Um, and because of all of these factors, they were not able to rule out lots of interesting possibilities. And so I think that they, I think that the scientists both knew this, uh, but the two papers basically put totally different slants on it. The one paper said, we can't rule out the possibility that 2.2 million people are die, will die if we don't do anything. So, and that number was based on, it could be the case that very few people are infected, but it is highly infectious and it's And it kills dead. 3% of people. Yes. The other paper said, well, it's also consistent. The data that we have available is also consistent with the case where many more people are infected and it's not as deadly as we thought, so forth and so on. And so, you know, in a sober world, what we would like is that the media didn't pick up on either paper, didn't put them in juxtaposition. The scientists wouldn't talk about, you know, wouldn't have sort of foregrounded one over the other. Um, yeah, so uh, the fact is the data did not resolve things. Um, and so this, is, this has been a real case study in that. People think of science as being a collection of facts, uh, but really science is a method for ruling out scenarios. Um, and in this particular case, the science, that method, did not allow us to rule out um, enough scenarios so that the decision-making was obvious. And when that so happens... You have to you have to guess. Well, you have to guess, but then you have to think about what gives on the other side, right? So, so yeah. we, we we talk a lot about trade offs in our discussions in our group here, the classes that this video is going to be shown to. Um, so here we are looking at a few different scenarios, a possibility associated with the progression of the disease. There is one yeah. path that is compatible yeah. with the data that we've seen so far that will lead to something like two million deaths in the U.S. And there's another path that's a path that's more like mild that maybe leads to two hundred thousand deaths in the U.S. Uh, and now we have to decide what to do. We can go in and say, we're going to lock down our economy. We're going to put everybody in house arrest. Or we're going to do what a country like, let's say, Sweden did, which is say, we're not going to do it. We're going to just tell people to be careful, you know, close some obvious things, and then see how this thing goes. 
Um, so, you know, there's possibilities and there's real costs in one, if yeah. I'm wrong in one direction, but there's also real costs if I'm wrong in the other direction. Yeah. So one of the things that got lost in all of this, so, so, uh, I agree broadly with what you said. I don't know if I'd use the word house arrest. It's a little loaded. <laughs> um, well, not in the U S but in, in places like Italy, you were in house arrest. Yeah. Anyway. Um, um, yeah. So, so in, typically in the, in the academic scholarly literature on decision-making under uncertainty, there's a big component played by the utility or the cost, and, and those play a strong role. And ideally, we would be balancing those. And you can't do it. You can't do it exactly, right? right. It's too hard. The world is complicated. But you want to at least be aware of it. And, the, and you know, you and I have been collecting articles. There were people that were sort of bl blaring this horn, saying, "Hey, look, there's costs, economic costs, unemployment, stuff like that." Um, but I guess it's just it's it's hard, and. What I noticed, the thing that, that, that I personally was um, turned off by in, in what I saw in the policymaking was that people were not being open about the trade-offs and about the interpretation. So it wasn't as if the um, ICL paper came out. ICL? It is ICL. Yeah. I always get, I get No, ICL. no, Imperial College. Imperial College London, right? ICL. Yeah. I, okay. U, not UCL, University College London. That's right. That's right. See, this is why. So, so I'm a pro, right? <laughs> so um, when that paper came out, it wasn't. It wasn't like they were like, well, this, 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 and worst case scenario, and, and there's these other costs. Like, it was a kind of a long report, but the tenor of it for sure was like, we should do this thing, and they really never backed off. Um, so it makes it hard to make decision making because the, the, the people downstream from that hear one story and they don't know what to do with it. I guess what I'm trying to say is um, I, I think people have their own incentives for the way that they interpret this stuff and they, they do not necessarily explain themselves. So, so you, you know, you're, you're tiptoeing around this a bit, but, but <laughs> we, can, we can say it more openly that, that our biases when we scientists, you know, generally speaking, you and I are scientists and, and, and enough, enough. Yeah. And when we write something, it's really hard not to let your, your beliefs come in and say, Oh, here's what I think is right or wrong with this analysis or, or, or so on. Right. It's really hard. And then we have a process of peer reviewing that oftentimes is very frustrating. It sort of tries to mitigate that a bit. And, and, you know, yeah. it's bad done in its best format does that it takes yeah. away some things that maybe I think yeah. is that's not a generic genetic enough claim to be made worth mentioning right that neither of these two papers we're talking about were peer-reviewed and they were very rushed um the the one paper was from a government panel so in, in that sense it was it was a large group of people and they were sort of enlisted to to do this type of work the the other group I think it was a response paper because they saw the ICL paper and they were like wait a sec um, be more both papers were not great scientifically I, I mean I'm willing to go on the record and say that like uh, when I saw those models and when I saw what they had done and how they had dealt with the uncertainty, I was not overly impressed. Um, it looked hasty um, and it was Riddle. not, it was not well documented. Um, the code was not readily available. You know, all, all the sort of standards of, that you would typically hold for scholarly work were sort of not met in either paper. Um, Which again, in some ways, is also, is also is also understandable given yeah. that the, the time, yeah. the, it was rushed to be produced and, and yeah. all that, right? Um, so, 
Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, this is not coming across as a clear narrative. You were just asking me to talk no, about the sort of issues that are in mind. But, but I think I think what, what I think what I want to what I want to say is that is that you mentioned this that people like to think about science and scientists as being somehow these arbiters, like this this people in wearing robes that <laughs> yeah. you know are calling balls and strikes without any kind of like. And every time you read a paper by an economist or by me or by you or by an epidemiologist, their preferred path is there in one way or the other. And I think yeah. we need to you know, take that into account because when a governor of a state as big as California says, the decisions are going to be dictated by science, it's him not doing his job because science cannot tell him what to do. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had not thought about that and I certainly don't want to be, I'm not on the bandwagon of like, oh, science is subjective. There's certainly, you know, science. Done not well, subjective, but, but, yeah. but, but, but it has to be filtered. Science, let's put it this way. Science done well does eventually lead to facts. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not a philosopher by trade. Like I, I'm a student of philosophy more than I am a philosopher, but you know, they call this, um, what is the word? I swear that they use truth philic. Like the idea is like the method, you want it to be leading to the truth. And we think that it does, and, and that's why the scientific method is so great. Prior to a, arriving there, <laughs> right, uh, you, get to, you get to these places where you just can't tell. Uh, and that's especially true in, in fields like epidemiology. So, you know, I don't know. Like, I agree that the governor, you know, the people in charge saying we're going to follow the scientists. <sighs> yeah, it's weird. You're going to follow which scientists, right? If they had followed the Oxford scientists, they would have made one decision. And if they're going to follow the ICL scientists, they're going to do another one. In a way, it seems like just a way to take cover. You pick a scientist that's willing to say the thing that you want to do, um, and then you do it. Scientists are people, right? It's not like they don't have right. agendas. Incidentally, and I don't know uh, Professor Ferguson personally, um, but I read that article by Matt Ridley, uh, who pointed out that he's made a career out of saying that the next pandemic is going to be the big one. He did it with mad cow, did it with swine flu, did it with Ebola, did it with, you know, Ebola. So, so he has a track record of like, this is clearly his worldview. Um, now as an economist, and you're more an economist than I am uh, giving your station, but like uh, we talk about incentive, you know, economists talk about incentives a lot. Somebody said to me, you know, epidemiologists don't get in trouble when they're pessimistic. If an epidemiologist says everybody's going to die, we should shut it down, and then nobody dies. Everybody's just happy that nobody died, and it goes away. If the epidemiologist says, oh, it's going to be cool, not a big deal, and then everybody ends up dying, you know, that epidemiologist is on the hook. So, it's, But I think this time it's around... Pretty, it's pretty interesting, though, that you're going to advice from a, a group of people who have every professional incentive, essentially, to say that things are worse than they... Than they you know... And this, might have changed this, time. this might have changed this time because oh. <laughs> right yeah, so, so so it's no big deal like they, we, we we did something that it hurt a large amount of people it depends i, I mean we were still we're going to spend years trying to debate whether you know what, yeah. was, what was the the the, the causal effect here of what if we hadn't shut down what if you know and 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 relative to to the we're seeing that already. That's actually there's a lot of uh, variability yeah. happening in the U.S. Right, or states that are still closed, states that are open. We're going to be able yeah. to actually learn a lot from 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 the the, the experiments that are being run. All right. So that was. So anyway, so so the, uh, recap. First point: both of these papers, both of these two sort of high-profile papers, they use pretty similar models, and those models were not able to do everything we wanted them to do. And that's just a general fact. Right. So just the first completely plausible within those models. A path of 
Radically different, radically different. Okay, so so for people that aren't familiar with thinking this way, let me give an example that I worked on. So it's sort of like factoring a number, okay? So uh, five times six is 30, right? So let's say I tell you that it's 30. You don't know if it came from five times six or 10 times three. And those are very different things. So So let's say that you know that the revenue was 30. You don't know if you sold 10 units at three dollars, three dollars, or five units at six dollars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's it. That's all it comes down to. You've got some data, and then you've got an explanation for how that data came up. And sometimes you're not able to uniquely resolve it. If the number happened to be a prime number, that's, right? that's unique. <laughs> that's unique. And you can do it, right? But 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 you can't always. Um, so that's that's the first issue that nobody talked about. <laughs> yeah. Um, then fast forward a bit. And now we are here in June 5th, um, yeah. 2020. And what do we learn now? And how do we think about those models and those predictions based on what we now, now have more information about? So let's talk about backtesting, right? This is as good a place to do that as any. Backtesting is a term that I first heard uh, when talking about financial markets. So let's say that you're building a stock picking algorithm and you want to know if it works. So what would you do? Well, you could take the past data and then you would look at it and then you try to predict the future data, right? That's, that's what this thing does. So what you could do is you could pretend uh, that you collected the data in the 70s and then used it in the 80s, sitting in 2020, right? So you could, this, this is why they call it backtesting. You basically, you use your, your algorithm, you place it into the past and then run it forward. Um, it's a powerful method because it tells you if the patterns that you're seeing would have persisted. It's, it's just it's a smart thing to do. We could do that with these epidemiology models, right? So everybody was trying to do forward prediction, and they were taking those forward predictions, and, and they were saying, this is what we should do. Now uh, that we're here, it would be really interesting to go and compare what those predictions were to what happened. Now it's complicated. And the reason it's complicated is because there's an extra degree of freedom, which is the fact that we did things like lockdown. Right. The, degree, so, of, the degree of social distance is an enormous degree of freedom. Right? So again, we're, we're in this case where we're unidentified again. So, and why is that? So they predicted that blah, blah, blah would have happened. The curve would have gone like this, right? And then it didn't. The curve kind of went like this. And the question is, did the curve go like that because the world wasn't as bad as we thought it was? Uh, the disease wasn't as, as bad in some ways? Or did that happen because we were all very, very good boys and girls and, and stayed inside and didn't talk to anybody? It's probably some of each, right? Um, nonetheless, that's the sort of analysis I'm excited about going forward. I think we have enough data to look at it now. And in particular, you'll be able to say things like, let's assume that we had very high levels of social distancing. If the disease were as bad as we thought, would it have still been, would it have been this low? You know, and I think the answer we're starting to see is no. Like coming in from various quarters, um, there's sort of, it doesn't seem like it's as deadly as it was. And it, it seems like the, contagious, the contagion mechanism is distinct from what these models thought it was, which was that everybody is equally likely to, I mean, that's one of the implicit assumptions right, right. in some of these models. Um, yeah, that's anyway. There, in, particular, in particular, that what we learned is that when you say it's not deadly, we're talking maybe an order of magnitude less deadly than people thought at first. Yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a very peculiar, to my understanding, 
I am not a medical doctor, obviously. Um, but that said, from what I've been reading, this it is a disease that that hits older people harder than the flu for various reasons. Um, on the other hand, it actually seems to be less bad than the flu for younger young people. Um, and that gives you a and what happens because of that is that if you aggregate up over age group, you actually get an infection fatality rate that's about what five times higher. Um, the, the it's getting to be less than that. Well, you know, last more, I, more I information. Yeah, it's, it's been. I don't follow it too closely, but but you know, it, overall, it seems to be. But if you, from a couple of places that I've looked, and unfortunately, I don't have references for you, but when you do the age breakdown, you know, below fifty, um, it seems to be the case that it's actually not as bad as the as the flu, right? Uh, which is one reason that I'm. But above is significantly larger. What's that? But above fifty, significantly worse than the flu. Yes. Yes. Significantly. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, and then the, the super spreader thing, apparently it, it, it appears that not everybody, you know, there's some weird mysteries that kids don't seem to give it to their parents or to each other. Um, in addition to not being that symptomatic, some people seem to be super spreaders, meaning both that they come into contact with a lot of people, but also that they have uh, high degrees of viral load and, and sneeze a lot or something. <laughs> I don't know what all the, all the mechanisms are, but and it changes every day. But the uh, point is that has, has a lot of the, it seems there's a lot of heterogeneity there and not something that is yes. homogeneous as they yes. as, as a lot of those models will assume. Yeah, so the models basically assume that everybody, there, there's some fraction, you know, it's based on averages. These simple models are, 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 are essentially estimate an average and then assume that the average holds for everybody. So everybody in the, in the model is equally likely to die of it. Everybody's equally likely to get it in the, in the simplest models. Right. Um, that's what it looks like. So, which we're finding is not true. Um, I don't know, like, like I guess the, the tenor of, I am not gonna come down and tell people that they should not be scared of this. I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. What I do feel comfortable saying is that I am not scared of it anymore. Just my, my synthesis of the information, you know, sort of informally. Are you willing, to, to, children, are you, are you willing, willing to put your children back in school? Uh, they go back on June 22nd. Okay. Uh, that's an important thing. Are you willing to, to go on a trip? Yes. <laughs> so I don't think I'm going to be doing a lot. I, like I'm a little leery, a little bit. You, you wouldn't go to a crowded bar. I wouldn't go to a crowded bar anyway. Probably. Yeah. But yeah, no. So sporting events, probably not, okay. um, you know, large, large, densely public transportation, uh, probably not. But would you say that from a personal, uh, risk aspect or from like, I don't want to be a vector. Cause if, if I go to a crowded bar, or to a, a sporting event, I'm, I'm being a vector. I'm, I'm more likely to become a vector yeah. when I help the, the spread of the disease. Um, I think both, I think both. Um, I don't, I don't consider, so this, this is kind of an interesting point. I don't consider those two things as distinct as some people. So this came up with, with the discussion of masks. So people were talking about art and the CDC screwed up, right? Because in the sense that they waffled and they weren't clear and they weren't- And the just, WHO. It, yes, just sort of across the board. Um, the, the rationale for masks all along, if you've been paying attention to the way they've been used for decades in Asian countries, is that it's a courtesy gesture. It's to prevent you from getting other people sick. All of the scientific studies on this uh, have been about, does it protect you? Um, and I think the CDC's rationale early on, although they didn't ever say this, and I don't think they, they ever came out and said this, was that um, they wanted to keep the personal protective equipment for the frontline workers so that they didn't get sick, which is a totally reasonable thing. But rather than saying that, that apparently there was this paternalistic response where, you, where they just told people the masks aren't effective. 
uh, don't use them because we need to save them for the, I, I mean, like just on the face of it, the logic of it doesn't make sense. Don't use the masks. They don't work because we need them for the doctors. Doctors, right. <laughs> like if they're not, like what? And so there's two different, you know, and this is a persistent confusion. Two different things that the mask can do, right? So the question is, when you go to a grocery store, should you wear a mask? Uh, and this gets to your question of, well, is it because you're scared of infection? If it's because you're scared of infection, the mask doesn't really help. help. But it, it kind of obviously helps for you because it prevents you, you from sneezing on things. Right. So if you're the vector, um, so that, that's kind of an interesting, you know, these are the sort of subtleties that have become commonplace in life now that people are bad at, right? People are bad at parsing this sort of thing. Um, and it makes everybody anxious and then they fight over the masks. And then on top of that, there's misinformation, people saying that the masks can make you sick. And right. It becomes a, and then becomes a political statement. And then uh, it's a mess. Anyway, going back to the point, um, I think about it as a community. And so I think about getting my kids teacher sick. So, so it is sort of self-interested in that way. It's like, I don't have this very abstract notion of being a vector, but, but I do think about, I don't want to get the bus driver sick who then gets the teacher sick, who then gets my kid, you know? So, uh, and I think that's the right attitude. Like we're kind of in this together and, and we should just do what we need to do to keep people safe. But that doesn't extend to, you know, yeah, well, one question, one question I'm asking pretty much everybody that I'm talking yeah. to is that what you're talking about is that there's an externality, right? There's a cost that's not to you directly, personally, that's being yeah. uh, associated. When you go out, you might have be facing your personal risk of deciding, you know, to go out to a bar or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that cost is, is you can decide to mitigate your cost the way, you know, the, the cost of you getting sick, whatever you want. But by you being out, that increases the transmission rate of the disease out there. And that's a cost to others. That you yeah. are that you are creating. So you're not internalized. That we call that in economics. We're going to talk about that in this class. An externality. Right. An interesting thing about this problem is that it's very different than a typical example of externality is pollution. I send some stuff in the air. The air is polluted. Not costing me anything directly, but costs everybody else. I'm not paying the price for it. So you know we need to somehow create a, a mechanism for to fix that, right? But unlike pollution, the people that are really at risk here have a choice of not going out. <laughs> So you, it's you not talking, like I have a choice of not breathing the air, right? Yeah. So in this series, are you talking to Kaplan? Uh, we will later. Yes. Okay. Later. So he, Kaplan had a nice comment about this. But 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 here's the part of the externality that I think it's so you know I think that, that, that I've I've heard that part of the discussion and some people elaborate very clearly on that. But one thing that I've not heard yet is the fact that we also use vaccines, and again I will talk about vaccines in our class yeah. uh, as an example of a positive externality. By yes. me vaccinating, I become now immune person in the system and therefore slows down the progression of the disease right by the same logic my kid that is not at risk kept getting the disease and becoming immune is actually a generator of a positive externality so the externality it, it, there's a there's a phase transition between when it's negative versus when it's positive so in a world in which i could isolate all the people that are really at risk yeah. and let everybody else hang hang out and mingle we'll get to herd immunity and, and then, then they can come out and then the other people can come out. This was, the, this was the Sweden plan, right? But they did a bad job at step one. At step one, which is hard. It might, be, it might be impossible, right? It might be impossible. That's right. right. They did a bad job at step one, which is that their nursing homes got super sick. But right. everyone's did. Right. I, I mean, nobody did a good job at it that. It turns out to be very hard not to, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, and if you didn't know, if the thing was asymptomatic in the beginning, nobody knew and is already getting in. So, you know, it might be too late. By the time we figure out, it might have been too late, right? 
yeah. um, we could have avoided sending COVID positive patients back into nursing homes like a lot of states did. And that's the difference. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think New York, New York had a policy. 4,300 patients positive were sent back to nursing homes, <laughs> uh, which again, I, I don't know. <laughs> what, the, about, what, what about, um, I, I mean, it's funny because the, the, the area in which I have any professional expertise is in, a, is in this, this idea of, of quantifying the uncertainty or trying to figure and yeah, in, in some sense, there's not that much to say. Like, like, like there was a lot that well, we you said already. I think some in the decision making part. I think I think you you you, you yeah. use a sentence before to me that I think is interesting. Is that I think a lot of the ways people are talking about this, they're confusing the evidence with their values. Yeah. Right. And and I think in decision making, we have the evidence part that has a lot of uncertainty, and then we have to put that through a utility function that says, okay, now I make a decision. Right. And that's what yes. your values come in, and that's totally fine. You might we have the same evidence you and I, and we might get to a different decision. That's a big component it's, it's, of, of what we try yeah, to yeah, emphasize yeah. in this class, right? So, I mean, to get on to get on a soapbox here, the I think this is super important for people these days in particular, because I, you know, there's this uh, phrase of like uh, what's the word, you know, post truth world or post facts or whatever. And I think that this is that problem. It, when you've got scientists putting out papers and the papers are written in such a way that the value they're value laden, um, it makes it seem like the facts are up in the air. And to some extent, some facts are up in the air, but not not the not, but they don't disagree with each other. Like like a proper reading of those two papers is that they said the exact same thing, same thing. Right. and that one group emphasized one thing and the other group emphasized another thing. So at least at the end of that interchange, like the correct way to look at that is they analyzed data, they found a range of possibilities that were the truth. We don't know which one it was, and then on top of that, you layer on the values. But at least in that context, people aren't pointing fingers at each other saying you're making up facts. Right. Uh, furthermore, it means that you can have cases that are not ambiguous. Uh, the polio vaccine is an amazing vaccine and it works. And uh, to the best of everybody's knowledge, it doesn't cause autism. You know, right. like right. the idea is there should be and we can have this like as long as you how to put it like if people were open about when they didn't know they would be more trustworthy when they said they did know, right? That's true. But if scientists go around saying every single time, I know, I know, I know, I know, because science, and then they're wrong 20% of those times, then the 80% of the times when they're actually right, nobody's going to believe them. And, so, and, I, and I, I have a huge fear here with epidemiologists that's happening, is that, you know, they have a role to play whenever, you know, the, a play comes back, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna say, ah, you guys are, are you guys at it again, saying those things that are not going to happen. And then, like, you know, have the population of the world. Yeah. So, so that, that. I mean, on the on the other hand, you want to, you don't want to, a broken clock is right twice a day. So if they keep, you know, if Ferguson is going to be right, maybe yes, yes. one time. Maybe not uh, in his lifetime, but he's especially going to be right eventually. But, you know, not for the right reasons. Not for the right uh, reasons. Right. Right. Yeah. It's um, crazy. So, so one question I'm asking a lot of people is a question of. We all got into somehow for one way, for one reason or the other, I don't know, and maybe the Ferguson paper had a huge influence on this. The majority of the Western world, let's focus on the Western world, you know, the, the, the developed countries, the rich countries in the world, all of them, except one, decided to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, as we spend a lot of time talking about here, it seems that it was not clear from the evidence that that was the path forward. It was not clear from the trade-off evaluation that was the yeah. right path forward. So I think there. Do you have any 
idea of why. <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So uh, I think there are two interesting points here. So the first one, which is not super controversial and it's not really an opinion, is that in cases of great uncertainty, if you're interested in the global welfare, it is actually beneficial that people do different things. Because if they do different things, you learn from the places that did it wrong and you learn from the places that did it right and then you adapt. And in, in the sort of medium term, uh, everybody's better off. So fancy term of that in, in, in our science, right? Explore, exploit. <laughs> or what? Yeah. Right. Or multi-army bandits, you know. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, so this idea is like, if you don't know and you want to learn, you cannot learn if everybody in the world does the same exact thing. All that's going to happen then is everybody's going to have roughly the same outcomes or not. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then it's very confusing. Um, whereas if everybody had done sort of different things, um, we maybe would have learned faster about it and we could have had better policies in month two. I mean, hell, we're on month, what, month three of this? Three, three and a half, yeah. You know, um, if everybody had been doing slightly different things, maybe we could like have this lock figured out by now. Um, I, I would argue that, that because of an example and by you kind of can rule out certain things by what we saw happening in Sweden. I, well, I, I'm I think not that so that's a, unless it's a different virus, I think what happened in Sweden shows us that by not locking down, by trusting the citizens to do reasonable things, they can avoid an exponential growth of the disease. Yes. And that, that, that not, is uncontroversial. Exactly. Right? That, that statement is uncontroversial. Yes. Whether that's going to lead to a higher death rate after the whole epidemic is over or not, I don't know. I cannot argue that. Yep. But I can argue for sure that we were <laughs> able to avoid an exponential growth of the disease by just trusting the citizens. Yeah, so anyway, so that's, that's the one angle, which, which I haven't heard many people talk about. You know, from an ethical perspective, the claim might be, oh, well, everybody should do the thing that they think is best, and if they all agree that this is the best, even though they're not sure, you know, it's understandable. You know, but then you, but then you can make the argument that, well, in the long run, right, uh, yes, everybody to learn. everybody's going to be better. So uh, anyway. Anyway, then the, the, the second thing, which is a little bit more loaded, is just the amount of groupthink uh, and sort of social piling on due to social media and just due to human frailty <laughs> because people are sort of weak and social. Um, it's been crazy. Um, the number of people that, that all of a sudden were 100 I'm trying to think of a good example of how crazy I think this all is. I mean, look, we know scientists, right? Like, like we have colleagues that are scientists and we know that they're just people. We've seen the sausage made and it's not always pretty. Um, after a decade or two decades, things get polished up and they get presented. But in, in the short term, science is a little messy. And I think because of that, people that do science are a little bit skeptical, usually. Okay? Um, did not see that here. Um, all of a sudden, people got scared and they were very willing to say, like, angry. And maybe this is just my little bubble. I've got a bunch of well-educated friends, but like by and large, everybody was like, trust the experts, flatten the curve. Um, there, there was not a lot stay of- Stay at home. If, if you dare not to believe that stay at home was the right thing, you're, you're, you're somehow- Oh, there was, there was a lot of value, the shaming going on for people that had differing opinions um, to the point where people I knew that, that weren't quite on board didn't want to say anything. Um, so well, regardless- I, I, I know that. <laughs> regardless of whether or not they're right, or wrong, the fact that they, they felt chilled, you know, I, I had heard about this in history books, um, about this sort of phenomenon, and this is the first time in my lifetime that I've really seen it strongly. Um, where, and I thought, that, I thought that was kind of scary, just that, that people weren't 
I, I mean, yeah. so, so let's talk about expertise, okay? <laughs> so I naturally am sort of authority averse, I guess, and so I'm a jerk. Uh, if somebody says, do this, I say, why? Um, and that's just how I'm wired. And I don't think that's necessarily right. But um, it's also not right to just trust with the experts. Blindly, right. Blindly. So go back a few years. Do you remember when Nate Silver was crushing it, predicting all, predicting all of the election results and so forth? And um, he wrote in his book this big thing about the death of experts and how data, data-driven was now the, you know, you didn't need an you didn't need a talking head. Around 2012 or so, there was this whole thing where people on the news would get on the news and they'd say it should go one way and then it would go the other way, right? Um, so screw the experts. Trust uh, the data. Trust the data. Um, and boy, did that go out the window. All of a sudden, I was hearing the same people saying stuff like epidemiolog- epidemiologists have been studying for this. Unless you have a degree in epidemiology, you can't have an opinion. On, on this stuff. Social media platforms are filtering out posts for people that did not have a degree in epidemiology or, or something like that. So that, that's like yeah. kind of scary. <laughs> so it is, you know, it, it's a theme of our times that information is widely available and um, there's more talking heads than ever um, and there's credentials. And it's, just, it, it's a, a sort of side note of all of this is like, when do we trust the experts? Like how, how expert are the experts? In my opinion, um, I guess, and I'll take, I'll take some flack for this, but I have not been overly impressed with epidemiology as a field. So I've got a few epidemiologists uh, that, that I follow professionally. Um, and just a name drop, uh, Sanders Greenland. Is, Sanders Greenland is a, an epidemiologist that I follow. And, Out of UCLA, know, right? Uh, UCLA, um, Jamie Robbins. Uh, you know, there, and there are people that, that work in this area that I know that work professionally um, I would say that they're outliers <laughs> in, in the way that they're careful. And, um, and so, you know, a simple differential equations model of the virus, um, not good enough, um, not up to the task, which is not really, it's not an indictment about, I mean, it's, it's hard, right? It's hard. And I'm not going to say it's useless, but good God, let's not pretend that these things are. And, and, and I think, I think that, that right. forget about a, a judgment on, on their field, on the models specifically. I think the, the, like a, a good, as you said, a careful reading of any of those statements of those papers in the early days would say that we don't know enough. Yes. Right. And, yes. and then again, so the, for the purpose of policymaking, there are situations where the policymaker doesn't know enough. You try the best to congregate the information you have. And now you're going to try to think about the trade-offs you face, and you might not know enough about the trade-offs you face either, because in this case you don't right. know, right? What's is going to be right. two million deaths or two hundred thousand deaths? But you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. So um, Charles Mansky, Charles Mansky, uh, the economist at Northwestern, has a line where he's talking about decision making under uncertainty, and you know, uh, the most people would say you want to like do best on average, but in a case like this, you don't get to realize the average at least as an individual, right? Um, and so he's got this line that really stuck with me. He says, we don't want to maximize um, a priori probabilities. No, he used ex-ante. We don't want to maximize ex-ante probability. We want to maximize ex-post outcomes. Um, but you can't do that. You can do that. Right. I, I mean, but it's, it's, an interest, it's, a, it's an important thing to remember because what it means is that you can make a decision with the best of intentions using the best of the data, using an honest utility function, and still get clobbered. Um, there's just, but you know, 
That's how and, life and, goes, and, I guess. But, but, I, but I, think, I think that it's going back to, just to close it up, one thing that you said in the beginning is the idea that people decided to, to, to do, plan on the worst case scenario in one dimension, which was deaths. Yeah, that's right. Let's do everything it takes to reduce the number of deaths, whatever it is, right? And, 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 and people try to portray that as, a, as, a, as a, like a precautionary principle. Oh, we don't know enough. Let's be super careful. Right. But, but yes. what's forgotten here is that, well, by doing this incredible, incredible measure, sledgehammer on people's lives, right? I mean, I'm not, I didn't know at the time that all of a sudden supply chains wouldn't break down, that there'll be no food in the grocery store. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow, we know, thank God for no, I mean, Amazon and, and, and those companies that kept doing their job. But like, did we know that would happen for sure? So, so by the way, this goes, back to, this goes back to my statement about how um, the, the incentives of, of a profession. Because epidemiologists, by training, narrowly focus on deaths due to the disease. Right. That's uh, you know, specific all, disease. You know, a specific disease. That's sort of what they're trained to do. So you can hardly fault them for, for when they write up the reports even if they wanted to do a worst case analysis, which they should have been more honest about that it was worst case, but what, the policy you know, whatever they, they do policymakers that. are the ones. No, but the, po- the policymakers then need to, to recognize that that's a narrow metric, and you know, health economists are supposed to be the ones that, that sort of do the second step, which is to say, okay, here's all these other things. But I think but also, it's, but also psychiatrists and also sociologists and also yeah. like there's a lot of different input that is anyway. Necessary. But I think that you're, I think that you're right that there was a logical fallacy there about how to interpret the data. By narrowly focusing on these numbers, and by the way, we should not be reading these numbers daily. It is ridiculous that that it's like it's posted up there, and people—it's like reading tea leaves. People without training are watching these numbers going up and down, and then deciding whether or not to go to work that day, or yeah, or whatever. Know, it's, it's insane. Um, and <laughs> I have too many thoughts. Too many thoughts on this. I just one just left. So, what do you think happens next? That's more like now, just uh, putting you in a bad spot of making a prediction to close it up. I mean, uh, I think. Well, I said this earlier, so I'll stick to my guns. I think that what's going to happen is people are going to try to be very judicious with a lot of caution, and at sort of great inconvenience, they're going to make four-year-olds wear masks, uh, and they're going to open up schools at forty percent capacity. Um, and stuff like that. And I think that they're doing that because there's some regret driven decision-making, which might be reasonable. Um, and my forecast as imperfect as it might be as an informal as it is, is that people are not going to get sick. Uh, and that pretty rapidly, as much or as much as, or as much. And that, and that pretty rapidly, um, people are going to stop adhering to the measures because they don't see them as doing anything. You know, um, so I, I, maybe that's just, I, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic about stuff. And I, I think that it's going to sort of go back to normal faster than, I mean, faster is relative though, because this has already dragged on longer than I, know, I think, I know. you know, yeah, most yeah. of us hope. Um, but yeah, we'll see how it goes in the fall. I, I mean, I think higher education is going to be, I mean, this is me just talking about what I know, but I think one of the, the more affected industries is going to be higher education. Um, just because there's a lot of flexibility and the vultures were already circling on some of the traditions. So that'd be kind of interesting. I, I, I want to talk about, can we talk about, I, I don't want sure. to go too long. Can we talk about models a little bit more? Yes. I want to, yes. So, um, five more minutes. Otherwise okay. it gets too long and nobody watches it. So there's a famous, there's a famous quote in our field by uh, statistician George Box says all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's an interesting quote. 
in context, what he was saying was, you're probably not modeling reality perfectly, okay? Um, and that's okay, because you don't want your model to be exactly perfect, because there's another saying that says the map is not the land. If you have a map that's as, that's to scale. As big as Rome, right? As, you know, it doesn't do anything, right? So you want something that you can understand, but that captures the, the sort of key features. And then he says, some models are useful. So in other words, you can come up with a model that's accidentally too simple and doesn't capture the key features that you want. So people use this a lot as a defense of their favorite simple model. Uh, in particular, a lot of times mathematicians and statisticians will pick a model that they know how to analyze, meaning they know how to do the math to, to get it to work. Um, and then when somebody challenges them and says, well, you know, that's not actually accurate, they'll say, well, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. And actually what they typically do is they kind of elide. They just stop. They say, well, all models are wrong, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> As if, like, that's okay. Um, so I think in this case, we, we had a lot of that going on. People have these epidemiology models, these um, infected, exposed, susceptible, um, or ex sorry. Susceptible, infected, exposed, uh, recovered, I saw Recovered. recovered. Um, or removed. Removed, because um, they can die. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I saw some people talking about these and they're like, yeah, they're simplified, but to do it realistically is too hard. Um, you can't do that. That's just bad. Like, so, so in particular, what you need to try to do is elaborate the model just enough so that it captures the features that you need because you literally learn nothing from a model that is like literally what you learn about is the model. Um, and he, so you want to make sure that your model is qualitatively right uh, and but you know, if you have, if the mechanism is is that a few super spreaders do it, and you're trying to evaluate the efficacy of a lockdown, things are going to look very different than in a. So that, than and that's a actually model. that's the difference between economic models and you. You've been a critic of a lot of the econ models that we've seen um, uh, before. They actually have a lot of similarities in the, in the, it, its composition to the to the to the yeah. epidemiology models. But the difference between the economists and the epidemiologists is that the economists are very careful in thinking about the policy variables in their models and and and, and trying oh, to figure out well but with the leverage the leverage that actually you, you know they're going to be simplifying but let's have the levers in the model at least the levers that we're trying to understand what happens if i do this or what happens if i do that that's not in the models of the epidemiology they didn't have any leverage they were meaningful leverage that's why the only thing they had the only thing they had was social distancing Let's reduce okay, it yeah, I mean, uniformly the across the board yeah. because they didn't have any mechanism of yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I'm not going to let the economists, the models, I'll go ahead and say it. The models that I have been critical of in the past were the dynamic stochastic uh, generalized equal DSGE models um, because they're, they're like, they're so complicated that they're almost as complicated as the world. Um, and yet we don't know the ways that like, <laughs> so, so I read, I, I, I'm going to quote somebody, but without attribution because I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, you know, those models, like a model should do two things. It should either make good predictions or it should be simple enough that we can understand it. And if it, if it doesn't make good predictions, then we probably wouldn't trust the explanations. Um, and if they're so complicated, we don't understand it, then we don't know how, like, how, to, use, how to use it. You know, some of these models have, you know, so you get, a model can be wrong in lots of different ways. But, um, so, okay, that's maybe a good place to, to, to close it up. Um, the models that we've seen in this pandemic, they seem to fail in both accounts. On both. They're not good enough to predict, and they're too complicated for anybody to understand it. Yes. <laughs> so, on that positive I, note. <laughs>
And maybe I, I'm trying to think, you know, what does that leave us to do, right? In in cases like this, is data is data I, worth anything? I think the data. I think what I've been what I've been focusing a lot of my efforts on in this direction has been trying to learn from just data on coming out of things. Uh, the data that allows me to then help potentially inform not an overall sledgehammer decision, but like uh, more point-wise decision-making. For example, the fact that kids are, now we have overwhelming evidence, doesn't rely on any model, there's overwhelming evidence that children are not at risk of dying of COVID. Some will, just like some kids die of many things, that's tragic. Every single death of a child is tragic. I have two little kids and I can't wait to have them go back to school. <laughs> um, so, so, but the overwhelming evidence that, you know, kids are not susceptible and there's plenty of evidence already of the fact that they are not big contributors to the spread of the epidemic. So regardless of any other thing, those two pieces of evidence, they are available, don't require a model and they have a huge outsized impact on people's life. So I think to me, that's enough. And I don't understand why no government in the U S by the way, in Europe, every single country in Europe, the schools are open right now, every single one. Oh, 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 oh. I mean, but in the U.S., so nobody's to willing about. to go and say it. Nobody's so willing to go and say it. So much to talk about. Yeah. So, so New York is so different than Austin. Austin is different yes. than Phoenix. Uh, geographically, politically, socially, demographically, right? Um, it is crazy that, that we're looking to the federal government, in some sense, or even the World Health Organization, for, like, blanket guidance on how to do, deal with this stuff as if... I mean, talk, that's a one-size-fits-all policy, which just seems like a disaster. Like, clearly, like, maybe New York should shut down, right? New York, City. Now. New York City. Yeah, New York City. Maybe New York City, full-on shutdown, as you said, house arrest, no public transportation, don't answer the door for anyone, right? Maybe that's the right move there. Is that the right, is that the same move in Arlington, Texas? Probably, probably not. Um, yeah, so... And, and, and going back to a point of view of yours from before, right, this idea of experimentation is a huge important thing for us to learn about what to do. And, and you know, the U.S., one of the, one of the greatest things about our system is the system of experimentation that comes from the federalist system that we have. The 50 states have autonomy to do things. I love that aspect of it. I love that Texas can do things different than New York. But we went into groupthink. Everybody did the same thing. Now it's actually interesting because now you have variability. So you have, you know, I am not in house arrest anymore in Texas. Yep. Well, my friends in California are. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we can see whether, whether, what are the dynamics for those two different policies put in place. So we're going to learn a lot. I think by the fall, by the end of this year, there'll be a lot of information that won't rely on complicated black box model information that we can just look and, 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 you know, yeah, some assumptions are needed always, but we're going to be able to. We're going to get, I mean, if you call if you call these models black box models, people can be like, they're not black box. We understand them. And well, it's like, kind kind of. Right. Kind of, kind of. You don't understand the mapping back to the world is the problem. Like that's the thing. Like the model needs to overlay the the reality, sort of in a, in a reasonable way. One way, to th another way to think about identification is that you've got the map, but you don't know which orientation. Right. Yeah. yeah, you don't know which exactly. orientation it is, right? That's right. That's right. So yeah, maybe you understand your map, but if you don't know how to make it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm rambling now. Thanks for having me. Ah, that's great. Thank you for for joining us, and we'll do this again. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 